been our joy to work our way through this uh, beloved epistle, and we are looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 this morning, a precious passage that God has given to us, and I have entitled this message, The Pursuit of Sanctification, The Pursuit of Sanctification, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul writes this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Philippians, you know that we're looking at a series of exhortations that Paul has given to the Philippian church. These, uh, this section began back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is calling the church to a worthy walk. He's calling the church to conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And he applied that general exhortation in in a very specific way in regards to unity. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he repeated that call saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul generally calls the church to conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And then he says, how is the church to conduct themselves in that way? They are to pursue unity. They are to pursue being of one mind, one spirit, one heart, unity together. Now, in our passage in verse 12, Paul makes a transition in thought. He moves to a second main exhortation that he has for the Philippians, a second way that they are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The first way is by pursuing unity as a church, and the second way they are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel is by pursuing sanctification, by pursuing holiness, by pursuing a godly life by pursuing spiritual growth, maturity, Christ-likeness. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a call to sanctification. It is a call to sanctification. If we're unclear by exactly what Paul means by work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we can look back down at verse 15. Paul says there, I want the church to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And he uses three adjectives there to describe what he's really after. He says, I want the church to be blameless, that is, above reproach, free from accusation or blame. He says, I want the church to be innocent, that is, unmixed, unadulterated, pure, sincere, Without any mixture of evil, Romans 16, 19 says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And then he says, 
I want you to be without blemish. I want you to be like the sacrificial animals used in the Old Testament, those that were without spot, without defect, without blemish, a pure offering to God. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he is saying these things. He's saying, I want you to pursue blamelessness, innocence, a life that is without blemish. He's he's basically saying, I want you to pursue holiness, pursue sanctification. And if there's any further misunderstanding as to what Paul is after, look back at verse 12, where he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now work out your own salvation. That phrase, always obeyed, modifies or explains what he means by work out your own salvation. He's after obedience. When he's saying work out your own salvation, he is saying I want you to pursue obedience to Christ, obedience to the word of God. The word obey in the Greek is hupakuo. It comes from the word akuo, which means to hear. The word means to hear with a submissive heart, to listen with a humble spirit, to listen with the intent of putting into application the teachings that you hear. And Paul says, you've always obeyed, you've always listened to the word of God in this way, so now work out your own salvation. What Paul is saying when he says work out your own salvation is he's calling for obedience. He's calling for blamelessness. He's calling for innocence, a life without blemish, an obedient heart. In some, he is calling for sanctification. He's calling the church to pursue sanctification. How does the church walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? By number one, pursuing unity, and by number two, pursuing sanctification. It's as simple as Hebrews 12, 14, pursue sanctification without, no one, without which no one will see the Lord. Now just to set this in context for you, this is not a new call. This is not an isolated call. This is not unique in the scriptures. Paul repeats this call throughout all of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, 11, as for you, O man of God, pursue Righteousness, that is, follow after righteousness as a determined policeman would pursue a known fugitive. Be relentless. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Don't let your life be aimless. Let your life have a purpose. You are pursuing, following after sanctification. 2 Timothy 2.22, same idea. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself or discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul described his Christian life in this way. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Back in the day, years ago, I used to do 5Ks. I don't do that anymore because I'm getting old, and I just watched my son do 5Ks now. When I did 5Ks, I was just there to enjoy the scenery. I wasn't there to win the race. I wasn't going to win the race. I was just there to just enjoy the day. 
And so I was sauntering along on my slow jog, but there were guys at the front of the race, really skinny guys with 0% body fat, running sub five minute miles, and they were running to win. And they had focus and determination, and they weren't being distracted by all sorts of things. They were focused on the finish line. And Paul's saying, the way I live my Christian life is I run in a way, not without aim, but I run in order to win the prize. And what do you mean by that, Paul? Verse 25, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. None of us wake up one day and a half marathon just happens to us. We have to plan. We have to be disciplined. We have to be determined. Every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Just a a, a humorous image of a boxer just hitting and doesn't know what he's going to hit. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Just after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying that I am living my life in the pursuit of sanctification. And this means discipline, and this means focus, and this means I have an aim, and I'm fleeing after youthful passions, and I'm pursuing righteousness, and I'm running in such a way as not without aim. In Titus chapter 2, we looked at this passage, repeat it for you. Paul calls the church to godliness. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Younger women are to love their husbands, to love their children, literally be husband lovers, children lovers. They are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, Submissive to their own husbands. And then he gets to younger men. He says, younger men are to be one thing and one thing only. They are to be self-controlled. The young men say, ha ha. The young, younger women have all this list of stuff to do. We just have one thing to do. Well, before you get so happy about that, that's the one thing that young men really struggle with. That's why he just says one thing, young men. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Be sensible. Don't be ruled by your passions. And in verse 11, he tells the church why they are to pursue these things. Verse 11, he says, for, here's the reason, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does the grace of God do in our lives? Verse 12, he tells us, it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You say, why should I pursue sanctification, Dan? You want to pursue sanctification so that you can experience the grace of God. If you are not experiencing sanctification, you are not experiencing God's grace because God's grace comes into our lives and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright lives. You want to experience God's grace? Pursue sanctification. Ephesians 5.17 Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Some of you are struggling with figuring out what God's will is for your life. What is God's will for my career? What is God's will for my family? What is God's will for my children? What is God's will for my major at school? 
And Paul says, let's just eliminate the confusion. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Pursue sanctification and you will place yourself directly in the middle of God's will. And you can trust that he will work to lead you in all the rest. This call to sanctification is not confusing. It is not complicated. It is not controversial. It is clear. It is repeated throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Romans 6.19, for just as you once presented your members to slaves, to impurity, and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Ephesians 4.17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You shouldn't, as a Christian, be living just like an unbeliever. There ought to be a clear difference between how you live and how an unbeliever lives. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. But that is not the way you learn Christ. You have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were taught that coming to the Lord Jesus Christ was repenting of your sins and placing your faith in his substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. And it was coming under his lordship, which, brothers and sisters, is not a burdensome thing. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Look, you're going to have a yoke. If you become a Christian, you're going to have a yoke placed upon you. You're going to have to be submissive. You're going to have to be obedient. You're going to have to submit under his authority. But he says, Matthew 11, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Sanctification is not burdensome. Let me tell you what is burdensome. Sin is burdensome. The unsanctified life is burdensome. Idolatry is burdensome. Sanctification by the grace of God is not burdensome. The yoke is easy and the load is light. This is why God gives elders to the church. It's not that elders are called to a higher level of sanctification than the rest of the church. It is that they are to model the pursuit of sanctification for everyone else. We make a big deal about how elders are to be blameless. Well, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, I want you all to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. It's not the elders called to be blameless and then the rest of the church called not to be blameless. It's that the whole church is called to be blameless and the elder is to be a model of that, to be an example that pulls the rest of the church along the path of sanctification. That's why 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 says that elders are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not drunkards, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not loving money. They are to manage their own households well, not quick-tempered, not greedy for gain, but lovers of what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. So are those qualifications just meant for the elders? No, they are meant for the whole church, but the elders to be a model of that so as to pull the rest of the church to follow that example. 
That's how serious God takes this call to sanctification. You say, how seriously does he take it? He takes it so seriously, he has organized the church around this basic principle. Leaders are not to be chosen on the basis of their business success. They are not to be chosen on the basis of their financial savvy. They are not to be chosen on the basis of their popularity. They are to be chosen on the basis of their holiness, of their sanctification, their character, because their example sets the pace for the rest of the church. Now, some of you might be saying, wait a second, Dan. Isn't sanctification by faith? Isn't sanctification come by believing Christ? Why are all these calls in Scripture Why are they all calling us to pursue, to follow after, to be disciplined, to obey, if sanctification is by faith? Well, let me help you with that. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, Paul says this, We give thanks to God always, remembering before our God and Father your, and here's the key phrase, work of faith. It is your work of faith. Faith works is the idea. Faith always expresses itself in active obedience to the word of God. Romans 1.5 calls this the obedience of faith. Galatians 5.6 calls this faith working through love. James 2.17 says, so also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. Faith, if it is really genuine, is an active principle, an active obedience in the soul that expresses itself in an obedient heart to the word of God. Sanctification is by faith, but that faith wants to work and to express itself. And if it does not express itself in works, it is not real faith to begin with. Now, all of that teaching, I want to set in context so that we can understand our passage this morning. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. And in this passage, we find three main elements to sanctification. First, we'll see the pursuit of sanctification. Second, we'll see the practice. And third, the purpose. And we'll only have time for the first point this morning, the pursuit of sanctification. The pursuit of sanctification. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, verse 12. Therefore, I pause at that point because that is a crucial word. Therefore, tying the teaching of verses 12 and 13 into the teaching of verses 5 to 11. Therefore, in light of the person of Jesus Christ, therefore, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Therefore, in light of Christ's self-emptying, his kenosis, his giving up his rights and privileges, his humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in light of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The call to sanctification is tied in directly to the work of Jesus Christ in dying for our sins. May I remind you at this point that the imperatives of Scripture are always tied into the indicatives of Scripture. 
The imperatives of scripture, what we are to pursue, what we are to do are always tied into the indicatives of scripture, what Christ has done, what Christ has already accomplished for us. This imperative is no different. The call to work out our own salvation is directly tied into the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen, if you are not sufficiently motivated to pursue sanctification, to pursue godliness, to pursue conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, let me ask you and to plead with you to go back to the teaching of verses 5 to 11. Just go back to the work of Christ. Just stare at the work of Christ and his work on your behalf. That though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. He poured himself out until there was nothing left. He took on the form. He took on full humanity. And he walked the road to the cross and he died in our place for our sins. Go back to what Christ has done. Go back to his love for us. Stare at the cross until the message of the indicative melts your heart with a love for Christ and out of that love for Christ, let that love express itself in active obedience to the word of God. The imperatives and the indicatives always go together and this passage is no different. Paul says, therefore, because of what Christ has done, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says in verse 12, my beloved, my beloved. You know, some of us hear the call to sanctification as a military drill sergeant. We see God as this, as this uh, great ogre in the sky who's just like pummeling us and telling us, you need to be holy. That is not the tone of this text. I was thinking of the times when I told my son, clean your room, sons. And I bark at them orders. And other times when I'm walking in the spirit, I say, dear beloved sons. Oh, offspring of mine, you are so beloved. Would you clean your room? And you know, that's the tone in this text. Paul isn't barking out orders. Paul isn't commanding. He isn't, he isn't um, trying to burden them with his language. He's being so kind. He's saying, therefore, remember Christ. Remember what he has done. He says, my beloved ones. In chapter 1, verse 2, he called them saints, separated ones, belonging to Christ. In chapter 1, verse 12, he calls them brothers. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. I mean, some of us hear the call to sanctification like the sterile idea. It's this great philosopher from an ivory tower theologian who is just giving us sterile orders. And here, sanctification is the plea of a pastor who loves his church. You are my friends. You are my beloved ones. We are partners in the gospel. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. My beloved ones, I'm calling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he affirms them some more. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, You've always obeyed. He's not, he's not trying to correct them or to rebuke them. He's affirming that this has always been your heart. Philippians, you've always wanted to obey Christ. I'm not giving you anything new. From the day we began till the day I'm writing this letter, you've always expressed your heart for Christ by wanting to submit under the teaching of his word. You've always had this heart. And so not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. 
I just find it interesting here that Paul didn't want to develop a personality cult. He didn't want the church to be overly dependent on him. He reminds them that, look, whether I'm there or whether I'm gone, I want you to be obedient. I want you to continue in the spirit that you first began. I want you to pursue holiness. And now he gets to the imperative, verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The term workout is the Greek word katergezomai. It means to work to the finish, to work out to completion. The verb calls for the constant energy and effort necessary to finish a task. It views sanctification as a linear process which is moving toward an ultimate goal. The verb is in the present imperative, meaning it's a continual idea. Paul is calling for sustained, continual effort in pursuing obedience, pursuing sanctification. You'll notice that Paul uses the phrase work out your salvation. The translators made that very deliberate. It is not work at your salvation. It is not work for your salvation. It is not work toward your salvation. It is not perform this work in order that you may attain to a level of salvation. No, it is work out the salvation that is already yours in Christ. Notice the phrase work out your salvation own salvation. It is yours. It is your present abiding possession. God has given it to you. And now because you have received it and possess it, you're called to work it out. You're called to flesh out the reality of your salvation in everyday life. You are to express externally what belongs to you internally. As one commentator says, we are called to live out the inner transformation that God has graciously granted to us. I might say to married couples, you know, work out your marriage. What do I mean by that? Do I mean get married? No, you're already married. Do I mean get more married than you are today? No, you're already married. You're either married or not married. What I mean by work out your marriage is flesh out externally the truth that that is already there. You are one, so now flesh it out in everyday life. I might say to a songwriter or a musician, work out the music that is inside your heart. The music's already there, but you have to work it out. You have to express it. You have to put pen to paper. You have to get a guitar or get a piano. You have to sing, and you have to flesh out the reality that is already inside. When Paul says, work out your own salvation, he is not saying that you need to work in order to attain salvation. He is saying that the salvation is already there. And now I want you to express it through a pursuit of sanctification, through obedience. And I just pause at this point, brothers and sisters. Let us never lose the wonder or the the amazement that salvation is ours. That it is our own salvation. That God has given it to us in Christ. That we we presently, in an abiding sense, possess salvation. We have been delivered from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light, by the grace of God. Salvation has been given to us. And so this imperative is not a burden. We do not obey this imperative out of a heart of insecurity, but out of the heart of joy and gratitude that God has given to us our salvation. So what a privilege it is to work it out in everyday life. Paul says, work out your own salvation, and then he adds, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, that's the attitude. It's a great statement. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul's not speaking here of the dread or the terror of judgment and condemnation experienced by those who do not know Christ. 
He's talking here about a reverential awe, a holy wonder. He's referring us back to the truths of verse 11, that we worship a Christ who is Lord over all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has been exalted above every name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so we pursue sanctification, not with, brothers and sisters, not with a spirit of triviality, not with a spirit of casualness. And I'll just share my heart with you this morning. I believe one of the greatest needs of the church is to recover an attitude of reverence toward the things of God. One of the greatest needs of the church is to recover an attitude of reverence toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we come to the realities of the gospel, the holiness of God, the sin of man, the perfect substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, not with an attitude of casualness, or triviality, but with an attitude of fear and trembling. It's like the old spiritual, where they sang, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it makes me want to tremble, tremble, tremble. All the realities of the gospel ought to make us tremble before the cross. If we are able to stare at the cross the God-man crucified in our place for our sins, if we are able to see the infinite price that was paid in order to secure our redemption from sin, if we are to stare at the weight of our guilt before a holy God and the perfect atonement that was made on our behalf, and if we are to be able to look at those things with a spirit of triviality, oh, brothers and sisters, something is wrong with our hearts. We must repent. These are the greatest, weightiest truths in all the world. And Paul says you are to work out your salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling. Not minimizing at all the grace of God or the love of God, but that these are the truths that we must remember that this is the love of God. It is the grace of God. And nothing of God is to be taken with an attitude of casualness. Isaiah 66, verse three, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you tremble at the word of God? Do you open the word of God, the scriptures, and do you come with an attitude of reverence that these are the holy words of God spoken out by God himself? And therefore, I must hupokuo, I must place myself under the teaching of God's word. I must listen with an attitude of obedience and submissiveness. Because all of this is an expression of God's grace in my life. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what he means by that is pursue sanctification, blamelessness, innocence, a life without defect. Pursue these things. This will never be the perfection of our lives, but this must be the direction of our lives. This will never be something that we ever attain to. Paul even says in chapter three, I haven't attained to this. I'm still pressing on to know Christ. After all that I have done and all that I've seen in ministry, I have not become perfect, but this is the direction. This is the pursuit and I'm forgetting what lies behind and I'm pressing forward to what lies ahead because I want to pursue sanctification. 
Well, brothers and sisters, the grace of God does not just express itself in our lives through our justification, positional righteousness, but expresses itself in our lives in sanctification, practical righteousness. Some of you might be saying, Dan, that's a great call, but you know, it's kind of burdensome, isn't it? I mean, you mean to say, Dan, that all my life I have to work, I have to labor, I have to strive, my life is to be a life of discipline, I am to run this race as one who wants to win? It just seems like such a burdensome way to live. Well, before you conclude that, listen to what Paul says in verse 13. In verse 13, he switches the tables. He gives us the reason, the ground, the foundation for our pursuit of sanctification. He says, for, and this is the reason that is coming. Here is why you ought to pursue sanctification. For it is God, it is the same God mentioned in verse 11, the same God and Father who highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It is the exalted God, the omnipotent God, the holy God, the omniscient God. It is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This just shifts the whole perspective. Let me just point out that the scriptural pattern is not just indicative imperative, but it is indicative imperative indicative again. It is indicative, verses five to 11, Christ has died, Christ has humbled himself, Christ has offered up his life as a sacrifice. This is what Christ has done. And then it is imperative, verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Pursue sanctification. Pursue holiness. And then it's back to indicative again. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have in this passage an indicative sandwich. The top half of the bread is what God has done in Christ. The middle slice is what we are to do in pursuing holiness. And then the bottom Sandwich is back to the indicative. It is God who is working in you. Paul says God is working in you. He uses one of his, the favorite words in the Pauline epistles. God is energeo. He is powerfully working. He is effectually working. He is fruitfully working. And notice he is not just working around you in some general sense. He is working in you personally. He is continually working by his great power to affect sanctification in your life. Listen, if you take verse 12 without taking verse 13 at the same time, you will become a very discouraged Christian. If you believe that my Christian life is only me working out my salvation with fear and trembling, and it is not accompanied by a confident reliance that it is God who is at work in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, you will become discouraged. You will become disheartened. At some point, you will want to give up. If all it is is striving and doing and being disciplined, and that is why you have to take the whole sandwich. The call to sanctification in verse 12 is rooted in, first of all, the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross on behalf of, of, our, of our sin. And secondly, it is rooted in the fundamental reality that God is the one who does the work of sanctification in our lives. And because God is the one who, comp who does it, God is the one who will complete it. You say, Dan, that seems like a paradox. I mean, isn't that an apparent paradox? You say verse 12 is teaching that I'm to work and verse 13 is teaching that God works. That doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to harmonize. I point you to the fact that Paul does not apologize 
for this apparent paradox. Paul is not, uh, he is not trying to explain away the tension here. He just presents it side by side. Sanctification is at the same time our work and at the same time it is God's sovereign work in us. We work in sanctification, but we work because God works. God's working is expressed in our working. Our working is merely a manifestation and expression of God's working. And I said to you this before, I'm not interested in resolving apparent paradoxes in the Bible. And if I tried to do that, I would go crazy. I mean, how do you resolve the humanity of Jesus with the deity of Jesus? I said, well, let's try to harmonize those truths. You don't try to harmonize them. You just take them both. You emphasize them both. Well, which one do you take on behalf of the other? No, you take them both. You emphasize both of them. Jesus is man. He is 100% man. And Jesus is God. He is 100% God. And you just emphasize and pound both of those into your heart. And the same is true here, brothers and sisters. We must emphasize the teaching of verse 12. We are called to pursue. We are not called to be passive. We are called to obey and to strive and to be disciplined. And at the same time, we are called to emphasize the truth of verse 13. All of this is just God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. You say, Dan, which one of these truths do you want to emphasize this morning? I want to emphasize both. I want you to get both. I, I want you to emphasize both at the same time because you need both. If you have one without the other, you will become an unbalanced Christian. Like I said, in verse, if you just take verse 12, I'm called to work. You will become burdened. You will become insecure. You will become discouraged. If you only take verse 13, well, God is the one who does the work. You will become a passive, lazy, lethargic Christian. And I know in my life, times when I've been lazy and lethargic, and that's not a happy Christian. You will not be happy living in that way. And so I want you to get both. I want to emphasize both. If we take the teaching of verse 12 and the teaching of verse 13, what this creates in our lives is what Jerry Bridges calls a dependent discipline or a dependent obedience. One commentator writes that the Christian life growing in the likeness of Christ is a blend. It is a blend of rest and activity. Note this, not alternating from one to the other, but a blend in which at one and the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently and actively pursuing. We are resting confidently. Why? Because verse 13 teaches us that this is God who is at work in us. And chapter 1, verse 6 teaches us that God who began the good work in us will complete the work until the day of Christ Jesus. But at the same time, we are actively pursuing because verse 12 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification is completely the sovereign work of God. At the same time, we are called to diligently pursue it. And so as much as the scriptures emphasize the fact that we are to pursue sanctification, the scriptures also repeatedly emphasize the fact that God is the one who sanctifies us. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 24 Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. You think the Corinthians had problems with sanctification? You think that they would have been a church that we might have wanted to despair of or to say they'll never be sanctified? To the church at Corinth, Paul writes, we are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look back at verse 13 for a moment. Paul says, God is at work in you. And then he says, both to will and to work. God does two things in our sanctification. First, he gives us the will. He gives us the desire, the inclination, the determination to obey. If you have ever had in your heart in any way a desire to grow, a desire to read the word, a desire to worship Christ, a desire to repent of sin, a desire to be a a godlier man or woman, if you've ever been given that desire, that is God working in you. That is him powerfully working in your heart to give you the will to be sanctified. But notice that God not only gives us the will, but he also gives us the work. He gives us the work itself. The actual doing, the actual act of obedience, the actual fruit of sanctification is the work of God. It is all God's work. It is God who gives us the heart to obey, and it is God who gives us the obedience ourselves. Yet at the same time, it is us who are pursuing actively those things as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God gives us the work, God gives us the will, and he does all of this, verse 13 says, for his good pleasure. Eudokion in the Greek, for his joy, for his happiness. Sanctification makes God happy, is the idea. And that is why he is sovereignly working in our lives to affect sanctification. Just as much as the scripture presents sanctification as a life of active obedience, striving, discipline, obedience, just as much as we are called to run this race and to box in such a way as not beating the air, the scriptures also emphasize to us that sanctification is completely, it is completely, it is completely the work of a sovereign God. How those truths harmonize, I don't know, but what I do know is I need them both. And what I do know is, brothers and sisters, you need them both as well. As we draw our hearts together after the teaching of this text, what I would encourage you this morning is that we in this text have been presented with a sandwich. Indicative, imperative, indicative. The indicative is that Christ has died. The imperative is that we are to work out the salvation that's been given to us. The indicative is that God is at work in us to work for his good pleasure. What I encourage you to do with this passage is, brothers and sisters, eat the whole sandwich. Eat the whole thing. I went to Chick-fil-A this week. I had a coupon. I tried this new sandwich. It was a sunflower bagel chicken. I love the chicken at Chick-fil-A, but I looked at this thing and I had no idea what the bagel was. 
So in my zeal to eat the chicken, I just grabbed a fork and just put it in the middle and just, just ate the chicken. And I would encourage you not to eat this passage in that way. <laughs> eat the whole thing because, brothers and sisters, you need the whole thing. Some of you, you will want to just eat the top bread or the middle or the bottom, and you've got to just eat all of it because you need all of it to truly pursue sanctification. This morning, we looked at the pursuit of sanctification. Next week, we will look at the practice, how it practically applies to our lives. Let's um, stand together, and let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, we give you great praise for the truth of your word, Lord. Thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that is able to pierce our hearts and it's able to change our lives. And thank you that it's able to make what is confusing clear. And thank you that it's able to light the paths in which we walk. We thank you that you have given to us your word that we may experience the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. And Lord, having given, been given such a great salvation, may we work it out. May we flesh it out in every aspect of our lives, obeying you and seeking to obey you with a grateful heart. Lord, thank you so much that you are at work in us. You will be faithful to finish the work that you have begun. And Lord, even now as we, as we take this brief break and as we go into our time at the Lord's table, may we come to this time with an attitude of fear and reverence. May we not take this time casually or flippantly. May we not treat it with a spirit of triviality, but may we come and may we remember the great work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, fill us with a love for him that we may obey him in our lives. We thank you for this time and we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.